personnel please report to the quarantine zone. This is not a test. A new episode of Presbyterians in Quarantine Drinking Coffee is about to begin. Hello friends, welcome back to another thrilling episode of Presbyterians in Quarantine Drinking Coffee. I'm your moderator, Mark Bernan, and once again, I am joined this time remotely by the miracle of Zoom to our good friends and uh, pastors in the flesh here, uh, Wes Lauber, pastor of uh, Cornerstone, let me spit this out, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in uh, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and Andrew <laughs> Jacobson, what's your yes. name again? Yes, Andrew, Andrew Jacobson, pastor of Sand Harbor uh, Presbyterian Church in Jupiter, Florida. I am here. The altitude from, is getting to you. It is. It is. The aurora borealis behind me is uh, is really starting to drain my uh, drain my thinking and my recollection. Yeah. We haven't done this since the first days of the quarantine. This. Yeah. Week. Exactly. Exactly. So, oh yeah. And great to be with you by whatever means is available. Uh, and gentlemen, we are on episode twenty-two. But who's counting? Mm. Episode twenty-two. Solus Christus, as we continue our discussion of the five solas, which yes. we were just, before we came on, the five solas are not a reformation, are not coined in the reformation, but are actually what? A summary of? Yeah, so it's a later summary of all the things that encapsulate the, these kind of central core truths and debates that were going on and the, the truths that they were rediscovering and used and that the Lord used to really revive the church. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So this time we did Sola, uh, Sola Fide, which was uh, mm-hmm. by faith alone a couple weeks yep. ago or last time we were together. And this time it is Solus Christus yep. yes. in Christ alone. One mm-hmm. of my I, favorite, one of my favorite uh, of the Getty and uh, Getty Townsend co- yeah. combos. Yeah. I think one of the, a way that's kind of helpful of thinking through Sola Christus and its relation to uh, sola fide is that now we are going to jump in the to the discussion um what is the substance of the faith so like even just generally i don't know quote unquote spiritual people they like to throw on the term faith right like you see a lot of uh, decorations with faith faith is just like a super popular uh, religious term but but what sola fide is relying upon is the substance of the faith, right? Like what is the trust in if the, the faith alone in what alone? And so that's, what we're going to be jumping into today. Um, thinking through the substance of the faith. Exactly. Would it, yeah. Would it be, would it be fair to say that I, I'm reading here a quote from BB Warfield in an article by Joel Beagie. He says this, the saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the almighty savior on whom it rests. So we have an object of that faith and mm-hmm. the source of that grace. Would that be, would that be a fairly accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a great way to think about the connection between faith alone and Christ alone is that, I mean, they are inseparably connected. Faith must attach to an object. You can't have faith in faith. You can't have faith in, in nothing. Yeah. Faith yeah. is external looking. It is outward reaching, or I'd say, you know, receiving. And so faith alone must be in Christ alone. Yeah. Faith must lay hold of Christ. In, in like the true gospel, in real Orthodox Christianity, uh, biblical Christianity, when we talk about faith, it's assumed that we're talking about faith in 
Christ. And I, I don't know, I, I guess maybe one of the kind of ways people use faith um, in general public, and correct me, I might be totally wrong about this, but it's kind of just saying like, I believe things will get better. Like I believe like my circumstances will get better faith, right? Like I have faith, like things are going to be good. Um, and there's no, there's actually no substance in that faith. It's sort of just a blind faith that has no substance. Yeah. Yeah. Faith, usually how it's used is, um, you know, I, I don't understand this and it doesn't make any sense, but I'm just going to believe it despite, yeah. you know, what my brain tells me or faith is like this, baseless, substanceless hope that things are going to turn the corner in the future for me. We mistake, we mistake biblical faith for optimism. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Because, our, because optimism really has no object, but faith has a specific object, the person of Christ. Yep. And so what the reformers were saying with uh, Solus Christus and Christ alone is that Christ is the only saving object that faith can lay hold of. Okay, now take us to that in the scriptures. Name, give, us, give us a couple spots where it is specifically stated where, where you would point to this doctrine and say, these two places, here I stand, I can do no more. <laughs> yeah, I think the first one I'd, I'd go to is Acts 4.12. Okay. So this, this is one of Peter's uh, early sermons in the book of Acts. Or no, no, he's actually before the, the Sanhedrin. They, they've told him, stop. You stop preaching, this is... This is you know, look, you're making us look bad. In uproar. Yeah. And then he says, Acts 4, 11 and 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. It's a, that's a quote from Psalm 118. And then verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so like clearly emphatically, he states the exclusivity of Christ. There is salvation in no one else. So he leaves no room for salvation to be found anywhere else. And then he gives the reason for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yep. That, that yep. would be the text I'd go to. Is, yeah, is, that's probably, sorry, Mark. Go ahead. That's probably the, uh, that's probably the number one spot. I mean, uh, Peter makes it incredibly clear and they take just even the whole concept of the cornerstone from Psalm 118, right? Is that, that Jesus is the foundation for everything we believe. Jesus is the substance of the faith. He is the cornerstone. He's the one that directs everything we believe and the way that we practice the faith even. Um, and then, I mean, so there's also in uh, Paul in first Timothy two, five through six, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time, Yeah. right? And then he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so there so is one God and one, one mediator. mediator. So let's address that here. Christ in Christ alone because there is one mediator. What, what then is the role of mediation? What has to be mediated, which mm -hmm. makes Christ so central to salvation? Yeah, a mediator is someone who is needed to provide reconciliation because two parties are at odds with one another. So I, I remember growing up in elementary school, we had this thing in fifth grade called peer mediation, where if, if two <laughs> classmates 
Yeah, it was, they were they were trying to help us be counselors. I I don't know. It was <laughs> a bad you idea. Grade. I think you were what eleven. Yeah, but you know you have if you have two kids. Andrew who are, was nineteen actually. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I got him education. Never too late. <laughs> but back to my great illustration. Um, <laughs> in peer mediation, you know, if two students were at odds, were fighting, rather than you know go right to the teacher or the faculty or, or whatever there or the staff. The idea was like, let, let's let a peer who can represent both parties to each other, try and come between them and help them, you know, iron out their differences so that they can be reconciled. Well, well, the picture of Christ as mediator is that God in his holiness is opposed to man and his sinfulness. Hmm. And how can that gap be bridged? Who can represent the holy God and who can also represent sinful man? And that's where Christ uh, our mediator comes in. He, he represents both because he took on flesh. And so in taking on flesh and taking onto himself a human nature, he can represent man, but he remains the eternal son of God who was and is and is to come. So therefore he represents God. Uh, and yeah. so Anselm, this church, uh, early church father had this great statement. The reason that Christ needed to be the God man was because while man alone owed the debt of sin, only God could pay it. So he, Christ represents the one who has to pay the debt, but can't pay it. And he represents God who doesn't owe the debt, but he can pay it. And so that's yeah. why he is the mediator. Yep. And I th when we think about the, the role of Jesus as mediator, we think of his role as the great high priest, right? Jesus fulfills the role of prophet, the role of priest, the role of king. And in the Old Testament, uh, when you were to approach the Lord, it would be done through a priest and then Jesus, the fulfillment of the priesthood. So in, in Hebrews nine twelve, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So through the, through the priest, right? On the, the, with the substance of the blood of the sacrifice, pointing forward to what we have now, the substance of the blood of Christ, but is the same faith, is the same substance of the faith, because the, the blood of the goat, the, you, we could go to Leviticus 16, scapegoat, we could talk about Exodus 12, um, the spotless, perfect lamb, we could talk about Isaiah, they were all pointing forward and find the fulfillment in Christ. And so that's another thing that we have that's really important to this discussion is that the substance of faith alone has always been the same thing. It's always been Christ mm -hmm. um, beginning in Genesis, ending in, in Revelation. It's always been the same. The substance is the blood of Jesus, and Jesus is the medi mediator. And even in, in John 14, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me, right? And he's, again, illustrating his role as the mediator, the great high priest. Yeah, and that's, that's a great statement that in Christ alone is not a Reformation doctrine only. It's not just a New Testament doctrine only. It is a whole Bible doctrine that salvation has mm -hmm. always been in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, it was in the promise of Christ who was to come, which was pictured by all the shadows and types and figures that were in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it was looking back at what Christ had accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and so it's always been in Christ alone. So what's the, what then, if we look at these offices, 
how is, we, we see Christ as the high priest offering the sacrifice and simultaneously being the sacrifice, mm -hmm. uh, the prophet who is announcing the kingdom of God in its fullness. How is he reigning as king? How is Christ, is, how are we to see Christ alone as king? How is that aspect of his threefold yeah. role? I mean, I think prophet is not just uh, him coming and uh, speaking God's word, like we see in the Sermon on the Mount, where he, he comes and he does something almost similar to what Moses did when he went up on the mountain in, in Exodus 19. But when Jesus teaches, they recognize that he has an authority that they have never seen before. And Jesus doesn't say, this is what the word declares. He says, I say, I to, say you. to you. He speaks of his own authority. And Hebrews mentions that Jesus is the, radiate, the, the radiance of the Father's glory and character. He's the exact representation of the Father. So Jesus is the word made flesh. In Christ, we see God's character displayed for us in how he lives. And once it's Christ is a living book, as the living prophet, he, he displays through his actions and everything what the Father's like. And then as king, uh, he rules in that he, uh, in his miracles, he is overthrowing every effect of sin and uh, the reign of Satan. So in his miracles, he is specifically showing that he rules over diseases and disasters and demons. Oh my, you know? Mm. So. That's the, the notion that uh, R.C. Sproul was addressing this in a, in a lecture that he did, Christ active and his passive obedience. Mm. And we see the passive obedience in his submission to death on a cross. Talk about his active obedience and how this, how this fills his, fulfills his role as a mediator. Yeah, um, well, a, go ahead, Wes. Yeah, so one of the ways um, Jesus is currently making intercession for his people, right? Jesus, as a mediator, is currently presently interceding for his people before the Father. And this is an amazing reality, too. Uh, something that we can't just simply glance over, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is actively um, interceding for us as he did in the garden of Gethsemane. Right. And we, so we have an example of what that intercession looks like, but at the same time, trusting that this is, is current, or as you said, and I guess what Sproul was saying, active intercession. Well, no, no, you, I think you're confused at Mark. So Mark, you're talking about the active and passive obedience of Christ in his earthly ministry. Correct. Yeah. So how passive, he fulfilled that. Yeah, yeah. Because he did what man could not and has not yeah. done since the fall. Yeah, so his active obedience refers to Christ actively submitting to all of the demands of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like Galatians 4 mentions that Christ was born under the law. Well, he's born under the law so that he could keep the law for those who are under the law but failed to keep it. And in a sense, he also fulfills Adam's obligations. Adam, the the first Adam was supposed to obey God's commands to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And he failed. And Christ is the second Adam. He, he fulfills where, where Adam failed. Yeah. And his passive obedience isn't, doesn't mean that Christ passively, you know, did something. He just kind of stood by something happened to him, but it's, it's the idea that uh, when he goes to the cross, he bears in himself the punishment and penalties of the law. He absorbs them in himself. So he actively obeys yeah. all the demands of the law in his life. And then on the cross, he, 
he takes on all of the curse and punishment of the law. So and we, we get, we benefit from both of those obediences. Yeah. So, so Mark in the, in, when you're talking about passive obedience um, and I'm, I'm not too familiar with, um, with what, what exactly Sproul was saying there, are you talking about uh, the, the obedience that is being carried out on behalf of uh sinful man right like so it's it's the obedience that was required for heaven that jesus is fulfilling um but it's not like he's not actively doing it it's the obedience required of the father the holiness that is required to enter into his presence yeah i I think as i was as i was understanding the, the conversation there was there thy will not mine be done is is not just passive but his active obedience being that perfect uh, the, the 33 years of perfect fulfillment of the gotcha. Father's will. Yeah, it's uh, like and when, then at the end, he... Yeah, it's like when he goes to John to be baptized, and John doesn't want to baptize him because he's confused. That this, this is a sinless mm-hmm. you know, person here. Why would I have to baptize him? But Jesus says, it is fulfilling so that I might fulfill all righteousness. Well, part of what Jesus yeah. came to do was to enter into the place of sinful man and yet do so sinlessly by every step of the way, obeying his father's will. I came not to do my own will, but with the will of the father who sent me. Gotcha. This is, this, I think this feeds back into what, into Wes's point here is that, that what qualifies Jesus to make active intercession for us as believers is both his active and passive, his complete and utter obedience to the will of the father at every step of his earthly walk. Yeah. yeah. Here's a good question that someone asked me. Let me get your feedback on this. Someone said, you know, we, we say that when Christ cried on the cross, it is finished, that his, his work of redemption was done. And yet the Bible speaks of him having a ministry still in heaven. It's not like he's, he's just kind of twiddling his thumbs, waiting for his father to tell him he can come back. But he's interceding. It specifically mentions his prayer. So how does his current heavenly intercessory ministry, how does that relate to the believer? And how, how should we think about that and draw comfort from it? Well, this is this is Hebrews. This is Hebrews four. He, he makes intercession for us. Mm-hmm. We have a great high priest who is able, unable to. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, this is what allows him. This is what. Uh, this is this is what qualifies him to make that act of intercession. Is that he has suffered as we have suffered, yet without sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so, when I think of the the intercession of Christ. Um, and I don't have a Bible in front of me, but the, the high priestly prayer. Wait, you're that a Presbyterian. Where's your Bible? <laughs> I'm presently without, but I, um, the, the high priestly prayer in John, when Jesus is praying, he, he's look, I think if we look at the content of the prayer, um, there's a few things that are clear there. And I, if I remember correctly, one of them is, He's praying for their sanctification. He's, he says that they are not of the world, but they are in the world. Mm-hmm. And then I believe he says um, that he's not going to take them out of the world, but that they are to remain in the world, even though they are not of the world, just like he himself is not of the world. world right. And so, so Jesus is actively praying for their sanctification. Paul are for the sanctification of his people. Now, and I'm, I'm not trying to draw too much of a correlation here, but in Colossians, 
Paul does something similar. Paul prays for the sanctification of the church in Colossae, right? And, and it's not as if this, the sanctification is um, sort of directly caused by the prayer, but or that, that the prayer changes the Father's mind, but that the prayer is the will of God to bring about the sanctification. And so I don't think it would be inaccurate to say the same thing of the prayer of Christ, his current and present intercession for us as our mediator, as our great high priest, is that Jesus, the, the will of the Father in, in Christ's petition for us is being carried out, right? And that this is actually the work of God enabling us to obey. Mm, mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think of it in terms of, well, one, there's a picture of the Old Testament high priest that he would have all the stones of the yeah. nations yep. of Israel on his shoulders and on his chest. And that part of his intercession was that as he was wearing that, he was representing the people. He was always carrying the people on his shoulders, on his heart, so that he could remember them, so that he knew that his work was being done on their behalf. But then I think of it, a New Testament picture of Christ praying is uh, when Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me, you know, so many times. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And then Jesus says, yeah. but I have prayed for, prayed you. for you. Yep. And that Amen. the prayer of Christ there offered on behalf of Peter is what the Lord used and ordained so that Peter would deny him, but would not ultimately fall away, that it would preserve him from, from ruin and, and bring him back. Yeah. I want to apologize. I had to verbally say amen, even though that's disallowed by Presbyterians huh. and that the, the Presbyterian amen is actually the head nod, but you guys can't see me right now. So I well, had if to you raise your hands and say, amen. I think that's when you fall into that's, into that's when things get right out of hand. Yeah. yeah. That's when you cross the line. So we've seen, we've seen Christ as, as the perfect mediator slash intercessor. Cause is that mm-hmm. not, he mediates between God and man by his sinless life his obedient death, and now he intercedes for man mm-hmm. in his presence at the throne of God, beside the throne of God. Yeah, we should probably also do the, the historical part with this soul of the Reformation. Sure. Uh, you know, why did the Reformers have to really recontend for this? And how had this been lost or, or covered over? And how you is know? it currently being yeah. lost and covered over in some traditions? Yeah, yeah. I think historically speaking, at the time of the Reformation. Obviously, the, the church believed in Christ, that Christ was the only mediator in all these things. Yep. But it was Christ plus, not Christ alone. It was Christ plus uh, a number of things. And some of those things were, um, it was Christ plus the sacrifice of the Mass. So that the Mass mm. in, in Catholic service was, you know, what we would call the Lord's Supper, where they believe that the bread and the wine transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ, and that Christ was actually being re-sacrificed on behalf of the people to purge their sins. Yep. And the reformers said, no, no, this is, this is actually nullifying and compromising the once-for-all nature of Christ's death on the cross. And that the, the Lord's Supper is not a sacrificial meal. It is a celebratory, commemorative meal. Yeah, I think... Um... One valuable lesson we can take from what Andrew just said is the simple reality that the most dangerous lies are that which are close to the truth. Mm 
Mm. And, and this is where it gets um, sad, sorrowful, and scary, is that it's not as if Jesus was taken out of the equation. It's that the equation that had Jesus was the wrong one. Um, mm. And it comes down to what Andrew said. It's alone, or is it and? Mm-hmm. Is it Christ alone as the substance, or is it Christ um, plus indulgences, mm-hmm. Christ plus baptism, Christ uh, plus praying to the saints, right? Is, is, it, is it Christ alone, or is it Christ plus penitence, right? Is it all these different things in addition to Christ, or is it simply Christ? And that's where it's scary is that we have to realize that it's not as if Jesus wasn't talked about in the Roman Catholic church. He was surely talked about an awful lot. And just because someone talks about the person of Jesus doesn't mean that what they're teaching is true. Yeah. Yeah. So the no, other isn't, thing... isn't, isn't that what, isn't that the Christ alone currently? That's the historical context. The current context is pluralism, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That it's, um, you know, the, the teaching of our modern day is that all religious claims are equally valid to one another and that the, you know, the creed of our modern day is to, you know, coexist, to tolerate one another. And the, the heresy of modern day is intolerance is exclusive claims to truth. Uh, that, yeah. that is the, that is the modern day attack on Christ alone. Yeah. So in other words, to be a heretic in the world is to be faithful to Christ. <laughs> and to be a heretic to Christ is to be faithful to the world. Yep. Yeah. yeah you can't, you can't be friends. Friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with God. toward God. There are subtle ways that we see this too. I mean, you know, and I think one of them is just sort of just generalized moralism, right? That, <laughs> that the, the Bible is an ethics textbook and that, you know, it shows us how we can be the superior moral people. And I think one of the most helpful ways is when we read through the New Testament, we see these, this like constant cycle of indicative and then imperative. And so it's, it's what is true about Christ and then also who we are in Christ Jesus. So for, this happens all the time in First Peter. It happens in essentially all of Paul's letters. It's the first part is the indicative, who we are in Christ, what Christ did f- for us, our salvation, and then how that plays out in our lives. So it's gospel, Christ alone, faith on the sufficiency of Jesus alone for salvation, everything that we need in him, and then how we live in response, how that plays out in our lives. Mm-hmm. What, the, yeah. what, the, what do the scriptures principally teach? Mm-hmm. What, what man is to believe, believe about from... God and what... What duty a uh, man owes to God? Yep, yep. Yeah, I think another another um, modern day attack on in Christ alone is it's not necessarily Christ plus or, or Christ and, but it's Christ as a means to an end. That Christ mm. is not mm. the the ultimate end. That Christ comes uh, to to bring us to Himself, but it's Christ as means to the life you've always wanted. Unlocking your, yeah. your full potential, all these yeah. types of things where much of the religion uh, that is peddled and passes, sadly, as Christianity, especially in the Western world, is uh, Christ being turned into a means to an end. Prosperity, uh, the, the essentially yeah. the prosperity gospel and its many manifestations. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, at the, and, and I think what the historical distortions of this and the modern day distortions of this all have in common is that it diminishes the central role of Christ and the exclusive 
glory that belongs to him alone as mediator and savior of sinners. And so for even historically in the, in the Reformation, you know, one of the things that the reformers just thought was, was blasphemous was the practice of praying to saints. That if, no. if you needed help or aid or uh, forgiveness or things like that, rather than going to the father through the son, the son being the mediator, you went to a saint instead because, you know, you, you couldn't approach God yourself. You can approach Christ yourself. And, and so they put all these other, and essentially what they did is for the saints is they gave them a mediatorial role that competed with Christ. Yeah. And it, and it, it took away from Christ's central glory. Yeah. I think one thing that in, in the, one thing that helps refocus us on, on the role of Christ as our, our mediator is the example of prayer and why do we pray in Christ? Like, what does that mean? Because mm. I think so many Christians just sort of say that, but they don't really understand like what it actually means. And I was guilty of this for a long time. Um, and it, it wasn't until I taught a Sunday school a, a long time ago on prayer. And I sort of came across like, you know, these all, every example we have in the New Testament essentially is in Christ. And why do we pray in Christ? It's because you cannot pray outside of Christ because you cannot approach God outside of the mediator. So we approach God only through the mediator. And so we pray in Christ because God is holy and we can only pray in him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's the only one who grants us access to the father. And that's why, um, you know, Christ alone is not to exclude the Father or the Spirit. It, it implies both of them because the, the rhythm is always uh, the Father who sent the Son, who sends the Spirit. The Spirit unites us to Christ who brings us to the Father. Yeah. Uh, and, and Christ is, is that, that bridge. Yep. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. A fitting end to a great discussion. Gentlemen, thank you so much. That has been so edifying and encouraging to know that our salvation is rooted in the object of Christ, who is the source of that grace by which we are saved. And mm -hmm. now, as I we're at episode 23. Are we going to move on to in, uh, By Grace Alone? Uh, it'll be uh, yes. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> okay, fantastic. <laughs> we're gonna we're slowly moving through the through mm -hmm. the solace here, but uh, hope you all have enjoyed this. Uh, if you've not already subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so. We'd love to have you join us, and uh, we will be uh, signing off for now. On behalf of Andrew Jacobson and Wes Lover, I'm Mark Mernan, your moderator. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Presbyterians in Quarantine, drinking coffee. This episode of Presbyterians in Quarantine Drinking Coffee is now over. You may now exit the quarantine zone.